Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and I'm going to be your host. Today, I'm welcoming another great Star Trek guest, Mr. John Billingsley. Let's get started. On mic today, we have John Billingsley. How are you doing this morning? Good, sir. Peachy keen. Thanks for asking. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you on. I mean, I know you mostly from Star Trek, but the fact that you've had a lot of roles that have all been kind of sci-fi themed or sci-fi centric. Some. Like some. I've also yeah. molested more than my share of children on television down the years, and that certainly wasn't genre-based. Uh, yes, I've been a serial killer. I've been a child molester. I've been a depraved politician. I've been a patsy, a red herring, a victim, all the different things you can play on television. So um, in your case, if you get ca- typecast as an alien, that's a step up. Exactly. No, I'm usually typecast as, if I'm typecast at all, I suppose it's as some version of a brainiac, um, because I certainly don't physically uh, strike fear into anybody's heart. So they usually cast me as somebody who can wield a sharp tongue. Um, And you do that rather well, I have to admit that. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, everybody's got their minor gifts. So... I just, I loved your, your role in Enterprise. Okay. I look, um, it, I think it was a fantastic show in general, and it was great having somebody in the doctor role who looked to things that we would call alternative medicine now. Although Fox always had a very scientific backing for that, which I thought was also a pretty good touch. Yeah, I almost wish they'd gone farther with that. I think in the uh, initial season, the idea that I leached, and when I dropped down to visit a planet, I was on the lookout for herbs and what have you. The nature of telling a story in 40 some minutes, it eventually kind of falls back on, use your little electronic gizmo and scan somebody and find out he's got cancer and push a button and fix it, which is understandable, but I think they lost a little bit of uh, the uh, the heart and soul of a doctor when they didn't go full for- full force into his, uh, his uh, uh, natural healing gifts. When you're, you're dealing with the, the very realistic idea of sending humans into deep space for the first time and you don't know what they're out up against, you'd want somebody on board who does and who knows the tricks of the trade on other planets, not just Earth. That was a clever thought. Yeah, I mean, what I, what I kind of liked about the premise of Enterprise, and I don't think they've entirely fulfilled it, was one, it was a dark and scary mission, mm-hmm. first ship into space. And two, that in bringing the doctor on board who they didn't really know from Adam and represented a culture that they were unfamiliar with, that his, uh, his techniques and ways of being might have been, you know, even more unusual perhaps than they eventually turned out to be. Um, you know, that's a, that's a quibble. And obviously I was number seven on the call sheet, so they weren't going to be writing around me, but. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. But I, 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 liked, I liked leeching people. I, I happily leached everybody. I don't like to cover them with slime and leech them and suspend them from their feet from the ceiling. And God knows, you know, every time you walked into the sick bay, I think it would have been fun to see some strange medical procedure going on that nobody could really understand. You know, it's interesting that you, you say that uh, they weren't writing around you, and, and there was this odd persona about Flocks. How about the fact that when you really did get to see him be totally alien, it was usually in a very physical way, the, the blown up cheeks, the long tongue, the, the weird nails. I mean, was that hard to act around, or was it extra fun? I, it really, it, it, neither. 
you know, so many of those effects are digitally imposed, the smile, the puffer fish face. So it, the only actual, the tongue, the only actual physical imposition on my body that made it a little tricky, the toenails, um, which they did paste on, the ridged spine, which they did to a certain extent paint and glue on, but rarely did anything they do to me physically actually impede me as an actor. I think one of the things they learned, frankly, from working with um, the Ferengi was that more than anything else, don't try and give actors uh, mouthpieces to have to work around. And I was very grateful for that, for all of the fact that it took two and a half hours to put that makeup on. It really was not um, problematic to act around. I think that Ferengi actors ended up saying that they ended up having to use the the mouthpieces to their advantage because there was no other way to work with them that day. yeah i mean i was just so uh, frankly when i got the gig and they said you know you're going to be an alien we don't know what you're going to look like you're going to come through makeup blah 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 uh, my, my my biggest fear was that they were going to want to give me some kind of a mouthpiece and when it became apparent that that wasn't wasn't going to happen it was like you know fine i don't care what you do after <laughs> that yeah all the glue all the paint doesn't matter at that point no, I mean, some people had, the eyeballs were a bit of a pain in the ass because I have a astigmatism and when they give you the fake contact lenses to really cover your entire eye, they can't, they're too big to correct for astigmatism. I, I don't know the science of it, which means that I was sort of half blind. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I couldn't really see terribly well. I couldn't see to read and I love to read and that's my my probably half the reason I'm an actress because it's basically, you know, for all the time you actually spend acting 90% of your day on set, you're just hanging around reading, which is heaven to me, but I couldn't read. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and I, if I popped the lenses off, I usually did that at lunch just to take an hour break. When I put them back on again, the afternoon was kind of miserable. So, oh, uh, so yeah. generally speaking, actually, I think Ethan Phillips left the show uh, Voyager early in the final season, in part because the eyeballs, his fake eyeballs, had just reached the, the point of, of bothering him so much he couldn't stand it anymore. I did not experience that. But I have to say, when the show ended, I might have been the only actor who was like, oh, what a shame. You know, <laughs> when I ripped the rubber head off for the last time, I was fortunate, too, in that I did not have a, an allergic reaction, uh, as, as some actors do, I think, to, uh, to the prosthetics. Um, so going forward from there, um, what are you looking to do in the future? you know i'm 60 and the missus is just behind me and we've had a nice run as actors we've i've been an actress since i was 10 uh and have been in the business for 30 plus years we didn't have kids we saved our dough we lived fairly frugally so i'm kind of semi-retired i'm happy to work if there's work obviously during covid there's less work and a lot of it is uh work that I don't necessarily want to do. I don't really want to go far afield right now. Mm -hmm. And um, I respect the fact that our industry takes the protocols very seriously, but nonetheless, I'm leery about working on, you know, indie films and projects that require you to be on location in places that I don't think take COVID seriously enough. So for now, I'm not really thinking about the biz at all. And uh, the missus and I both help run an organization called the Hollywood Food Coalition, which essentially addresses uh, issues of food insecurity here in the Southland in Los Angeles. And that is a huge part of my life. 
And uh, in essence, I've probably flipped the script. I spend most of my time working for the Food Coalition and acting has become not necessarily avocational, but has become kind of a secondary in importance. Well, if you're going to put something higher on the list than acting and something that you clearly enjoy so much because you're having a great time talking about that, if you're if this is actually higher on the list, that really says something. I mean, you're trying to get food to people. Yeah, yeah, you know, for reasons that I, I, I don't really fully understand, I, I, my whole life, I've just really cared a lot about trying to be involved in some kind of a social service organization, either as a board member or a volunteer. And, um, and it's been my capacity to do that has been severely limited by the fact that I had a career. I was a director, I ran a theater company, I was an acting teacher, and then I moved to Hollywood and started pursuing film and TV work. So I always tried to keep my hand in, but I was, I was definitely you know, not able to do as much as I might have wished. It, at this point in my life to actually have the, the scope uh, and the, and the time to really try and help build an organization that I believe in and to fight for things that I believe in, it means a lot to me. So yeah, it's, uh, I don't don't ever want to say I'm not going to act again, because I really do dig it. And I, Mm -hmm. I, you know, certainly I'm not, you know, announcing to the world, don't even bother asking. But you really have to be very, very ambitious as an actor to keep climbing a ladder, particularly as you get older, there are fewer parts the people you're competing against have been around for a long time. They're very good at what they do. Nowadays, you put everything on tape. So as opposed to going into a room where you might get a note that'll help you adjust your performance, you kind of almost have to you know, present the finished product and hope that they, they cast you without a chance to even meet you. It just feels like it's threading a needle more and more and more. And, and I don't know that I have the requisite um, uh, desire to, to, to fight for my share of the work as much as I used to. Well, if you're at a point now where you can actually have the, I'm going to use the word uh, luxury of saying, I, I can pursue the roles I really want or just nothing at all. I mean, that just says that the work that does come along, whatever it might be, will be that much more valuable. Well, I wish that were true, but it's not really the case because the better the work, you know, the more Mm -hmm. prestigious the project, the more people are competing for it. In fact, it's the opposite. The the really why one's interest begins to ebb is because the really great stuff is not, you're not going to be considered for it. It's going to go to names and I'm not a name. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a vaguely recognizable character actor who has a niche following amongst people who like genre television. That is not going to get me any significant casting. So for me, it's more about, gee, do I feel like just working for the sake of working because I like what I do, taking some of the stuff that's less appealing, you know, indie films that other people aren't probably gonna wanna do, tertiary guest star roles and TV shows that may not be hits. If I needed the dough, you know, I mean, I look back at my resume and probably 80% of it is like, mm. but at the time I was making a living and, you know, that's how I made my living. And now that I don't, and I'm, I feel very um, blessed that I have had the, the luxury of getting to make a living doing something I dig. And that in part because of my temperament, I never was much interested in spending money. So we saved a shitload. 
to not have to work at my age, I recognize is a very unusual situation and quite a blessing. And I, it makes me all the more determined to try and give back with the time I have left. I don't think, unfortunately, between ageism and all the other, all the other things I've just talked about, that, that I have like this, you know, career resurgence ahead of me. I, I don't see that on the, on the landscape. I stand very much corrected on that. I was hoping for the best, but uh... yeah, it's 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 just part and parcel. I mean, you know, it's ageism in our business too. It's why every woman over the age of thirty-five suddenly is getting botoxed and nipped and tucked, and her lips are bigger than her head. It's because you know, I mean, we are not. It, the weird thing about this industry, in my in my humble opinion, is that the reason you go into acting, the reason I went into acting is because I wanted to be able to tell stories about everybody and, and to, to tell stories about the human condition. Hollywood really is, is, is very visually oriented. The stories they want to tell are about pretty people, you know, and buff people and handsome people. And we, we oldsters and particularly we dumpy oldsters are, are you know, the, the parts are, you know, yay much and, and, and not that interesting. So the older you get, unless you're a name, unless you're a big name, the less juice there is and the less interest you have. If you're lucky, but, you don't have to worry about it because it's like, oh, fuck it, I don't need the dough. Sure. And at the same time, you, like you said, you managed to flip that around and turn that in, into uh, a chance to help other people. You're telling a story of the people that don't get their story told. Yes. And that's, and that's I think, why I've always kind of been interested in the social service stuff. Um, you know, when I, when I was when I was younger and I was an actor and I was a theater actor and I was a teacher and an artistic director of a theater company, I could kind of feel like there was a certain social service component to that work, starting a theater company, taking shows out to the road. We did performances in prisons and schools and libraries. And, and I, I, I liked teaching. I felt like that was kind of a form of, of being involved and giving back to my community. When I got out of a theater and moved, moved into film and TV, as much as I like the work, I like acting on camera, I like the intimacy of it, the sense of um, uh, a meaningfulness on a one-to-one, on -one, in a community way, kind of began to dissipate. So for me, I kind of upped the ante on the social service work as I moved away from the theater. And I don't really do much theater work anymore. I mean, I haven't been on stage in eight years and I don't really see that changing. So, so you know, you, you read, if you're lucky enough, you get, you know, I, there's a wonderful writer who I adore called, um, um, uh, oh, I'm forgetting her name. She wrote a book called uh, Somewhere, Diana Athill. She wrote a book called Somewhere Near the End. Uh, she lived to be in her late 90s. She was a very famous editor in England. This is a very slender memoir about what it is to hit your, your, your old age, not even your late middle age, your old age, and to, to embrace the changes and the transitions. And I think if you're lucky enough temperamentally and you're lucky in your personal circumstances to say, okay, my life has changed. My circumstances have changed. What's next? What's new? What's different? What do you do now? How do you kind of grapple with, with, you know, what's changing in your body, what's changing in your psyche, what's changing in your circumstances. I'm very blessed in that I have been able to, to respond to the world in a way that feels honest as I, as I grew older. I'm getting that from you a lot. I'm also getting a sincerity and a, a mindfulness about it because you're, uh, we try so hard to lock people in at a certain age, you know, 27, 28, whatever. You have to look this way and act this way and do these things. And when that's no longer the case, 
we try to turn back the clock and that's not really a smart thing for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I mean, in a weird way, the fortunate thing, I guess, for me is that I, even when I was young, I, I was no, as an actor, I was never anybody's leading man. So, so I, I, my definition of myself was never rooted in my physical appearance. It was, it, it had more to do, you know, a lot of it had to do with how much energy I had and how much enthusiasm I had for the work and how much I was learning as I went, as I was a young man learning how to act and getting better. Sanford Meisner famously said, it takes 20 years to be an actor. And at the time when I was 20, I thought, what? You know, as I got older, I thought, oh yeah, at least 20 years. So that journey was wonderful and exciting. I, I definitely have come to feel though, for me, while I really like the work, the thing that I need to do with my life at this point is figure out how to respond to what I think has been a, a corrosion of our values um, in the world. And I don't know, you know, after Trump was elected, I really had to gulp and ask what it meant to respond to what I thought was, was the coming of evil, you know, in all candor, the coming of evil into our body politic. It's, it, it has been there in American history. I mean, if you're black, you cannot look at American history and say that it has not been 250 years of oppression and degradation. The idea that when he was elected, you're just going to sit back and let the shit wash over you. So I thought seriously about, you know, is it politics? I thought I couldn't. I, one thing, I can't not say the word fuck. So nobody's going to elect me too. I'm an atheist. It's like, mm -hmm. fuck that. So I was like, what am I going to do? And I thought, you know, getting involved in the social services and trying to draw as many people in to help, to volunteer, to find the better angels of their nature on a community level where I think the rebuilding work in this world is going to have to happen because on the federal level in America, we are deeply fucked structurally. To me, that felt like the best use of me with the time I have left and, and hunger and the nature of supporting through the medium of food a lot of social service organizations trying to do really cool work by helping to prop up their food programs felt like the best way I could give back. And the fact that you, the Hollywood Food Coalition uh, puts food in the set, in the context of offering food and life necessities in, in, in the context of providing a human dignity of at least you have enough to get you on your feet on the ground. Yeah, I mean, I think we sort of start, there's like a hierarchy of need. The first need, every day you get up, you gotta go to the bathroom, you gotta have a meal. So we, I think we start by saying, let's, let's make sure that first and foremost, people don't have to worry about whether they're gonna get a nice meal. I mean, this, this is it's a tragedy in the world, but just looking at America, especially now with COVID, one in four American kids wakes up food insecure. In other words, like, am I going to eat? What am I going to eat? When am I going to eat? Where am I going to eat? Am I going to have enough? Is it going to be nutritionally sound food? Is it going to be junk food? Is it going to be crap? In the richest country in the history of the world. So I think you start from, from the base of what's the, what's the bottom line, absolute need that, you know, I'm sorry, but you got to have a decent meal. So we start from that. If you can start providing people with some decent food, though, then then they might be a little more available to you to, to for other things. You know, can, can we help you with some other needs? Do you have a coat? Do you have a pair of shoes? Do you have a hat? Do you have some gloves? Do you have a place to sleep? Are you getting medical assistance? 
there's only so much we can do in our what we call our community dinner program, which is people who are experiencing homelessness come to our campus for a meal and then we provide those kinds of ancillary services. That's 200 or so people a night, seven nights a week. That's a lot. But what we've expanded is into a community exchange program, which attempts to say, hey, there are all these other social service organizations, and right now we're working with about 60 of them, that provide help and assistance to their clients, but they may not have a good food program, a good meal program. There's a wonderful organization, for instance, called Village Family Services. They work with at-risk kids, and they offer classes and you know, yada, yada, yada. They had no food program to speak of, or kind of a crummy one, by supplying them with food, we've now built their food program so that the kids that come into their facility are gonna get a good meal. And in that sense, we're using food as a way to buttress and support the work that all sorts of groups do. Uh, organizations that work with people who are going through drug and alcohol rehabilitation programs, at-risk kids, um, women in, in, in shelters, um, women with young, young children in shelters, uh, senior citizens who are living on fixed incomes, who are figuring out ways to deliver groceries to their house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's that's really remarkable. And I, I, I can't agree enough with everything you're saying there, because if we can't get food into somebody's stomach, that's all they're going to think about. Nothing else is going to matter to them, no matter yeah. how important it's going to be. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And, and you know, and you have to, you kind of have to, Specialize. I mean, we have we have what we call four programs: community dinner, community exchange, community wellness, what, which is what we kind of consider to be the panoply of services we would like to, and to a certain extent, do provide to the people who come to our campus every night. And then community building, and the community building is the hardest to articulate, but to me, the most important because we have volunteers come in to cook, serve, and process rescued food every day, which means thousands of people come in and work with us and through volunteerism, I think, come to learn and appreciate how important it is to give back to their communities and how important it is to find some place of volunteer bliss in your life. When you are helping other people, to me, that scratches a critical human itch. And I, I think in that sense, coalition in the classic sense of the word that, you know, we are a coalition of, you know, different groups you know, doing this together, it, that's some of what we do. But to me, coalition writ large means we are all in this together. We are all working together to make the world a better place and we should figure out how we can help each other. Um, a lot of what we're trying to do in working with all of these various not-for-profits is figure out real specific ways we can help. So for instance, community exchange means that a group might call us and say, hey, thanks so much for the food donation. Thanks so much for helping us get food. We just found out that we're gonna get a hundred pairs of shoes that we can't use. Can we take them to your exchange and you can give them to somebody else? So we're trying to basically be a, 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 a form of, um, uh, you know, that's what we call it to be exchange, a mechanism by which groups can share, you know? And that's one of the big weaknesses for nonprofit, especially a, a charity organization, is that you have so many blind spots as far as what you have an excess of that what somebody else needs. And there's so few channels to really communicate that one person can fill the Peter can pay Paul, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 complicated. I mean, you know, all not for profits are underfunded, undermanned. Um, 
under people are underpaid. I mean, I'm I'm you know again, I'm in an incredibly fortunate um, position. I can devote my time without having to worry about getting a salary. For the most part, people who come into the not-for-profit sphere and are taking paid positions are sacrificing a lot of money that they could be making in in the you know in the corporate world, for instance, to do these jobs, and they're working impossible hours against impossible odds. And they're they're to my mind, they're national heroes. When I meet people who are employed in the not-for-profit sphere and I find out what they do, I always just want to give them a bus. It's like, thank you, thank you for your for your service. Um, figuring out ways to help each other. The I, 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 I'm not a communist, but I, I will say that I'm, I'm probably a democratic socialist because to me, the idea that this capitalist world we live in even puts not-for-profits in sharp elbowed competition with one another for finite resources, to me, defeats the purpose. I, I believe in a world in which not-for-profits collaborate and help and support each other as best they can. And if I'm getting donated something that I can't use, I'm not going to give that donation back because I can't figure out what to do with it. I'm going to say, yeah, let me try. Let us try to figure out a home for this, you know, and you do the same. Help and us that's that, fantastic. I mean, I have seen in so many not-for-profits that that is exactly what happens that somebody gets something that they can't use for whatever reason. And the response is toss it because there are rules. I don't know why the rules exist, but and, and to, to break that down and rethink the concept, because it, it's, it's a new century. We're looking at this theoretical post-scarcity society where things are just going to be everywhere. Let's use the things that are everywhere. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't know what world we're looking at right now. I mean, I, I, you know, where we're, where we're going in this, this COVID world and what we hope is a post-COVID world climate change being real. I mean, I, I won't get off on a dystopia riff, but if we cannot figure out how to make fundamental changes in the way we collaborate as societies and in the way we govern ourselves, and if we cannot figure out a way to kind of leave aside these, these racist appeals to nationalism and to exercising our petty grievances, based on our dislike of other people's we're fucking doomed and you know so anyway in some small small pissant way i just wanted to try and figure out how my life could be lived in response to what my my feelings are about the world and, and acting wasn't quite doing that well i'm glad that somebody is doing this job and i'm specifically glad that you are because you've got a fan base of some of the people who value community and progress more than many other fandoms. You've got the Star Trek community behind you. Anybody who's listening to this, anybody who's, how can we help? What can we do? Well, I mean, here's the thing, you know, obviously as somebody who runs a not-for-profit, the first thing that anybody who runs a not-for-profit says, if you would like to make a donation to the Hollywood Food Coalition, fabulous. And the easiest way to do it is to go to hofoco.org. That's hofoco.org. And, you know, we, we will do the best job we can to make sure your donation is utilized effectively. That said, I recognize that people living all over the world have charities close to home that probably fulfill a deeper need for them to, to be tied to their own community. So 
without in any way wanting to undercut how wonderful it would be to have a donation to Hollywood Food Coalition, I also would say on a, on a bigger picture field, where, where, do you, where do you, if you're listening to this, where do you feel you can give back at home? What's, what, have you looked into some of the organizations in your neighborhood that could use help? What can you give them? And it, it, volunteerism is a funny thing because there's so many different things that you can do. It doesn't have to be a physical reality if you go in and you lift boxes or you serve food or you're whatever. If you've got graphic art skills, if you've got fundraising skills, if you've got development skills, if you've got ambassadorial skills, i.e. maybe what you say is, let me help bring people to your door by using social media to promote your cause. There's a part of me that always says finding and figuring out what your particular volunteer bliss is, is the first step. And that's going to be different from everybody. For me, it happened to be hunger, but in a previous lifetime, I also worked for an organization called the AIDS Service Center because I come from a theater and a lot of people I loved passed away from AIDS. So I worked for a number of years on trying to help provide services to people who were HIV AIDS affected. Maybe it's that, maybe it's social justice issues, maybe it's immigration issues, maybe it has to do with, you know, God knows if you're political, I hope you're supporting progressives, but help there, whatever it is, but ask yourself the questions, find out what's in town and don't reinvent the wheel because there's probably an organization doing shit already. You don't have to make it up from whole cloth find a home for yourself. I will also say I've seen great success with people who find use for repurposed items. I have found, for example, your school may need those toilet paper rolls you're throwing out for craft projects. You can collect literal garbage and just make sure it gets to the right person. And suddenly you've helped somebody. Yeah. And and in terms of of food itself, specifically, um, one of the things I did years ago, my wife and I, is we would contact every one of our friends and we would say, hey, on Thursday, we're going to drive all over the city and we're going to pick up grocery bags of food. If you would like to leave a couple of bags, great. We'll pick them up and then we would deliver a car full of food to a local food bank. You know, if if, if that's an easy way to make a, a small difference and get to be pals, you know, again, and you can even do it in the COVID world, even if it's just waving out the car window, it's a way to get involved. If you wanted to do that, now think about how you metastasize that. What if you were to get five other friends to agree to do the same thing with their friends? A lot of, to me, volunteerism and giving back has to do with the act of metastasis. And that's a word that we associate with cancerous growth, so we don't use it. But really it means the explosive growth of an organism. And charity and giving back and volunteerism, I think of it as an organism. And if you want to help explode the organism that is giving, first off, who are your pals? Who are your friends? Can you lobby them? Can you speak to them? Come up with some specific ideas that you can get them excited about. That just happens to be one of them that I think is very easily executable. And right now in a time of hunger, figuring out how to get your friends involved in responding to the needs of people who are hungry, that's one real clear, specific, quick, easy way to do it. It is. And there are so many things we can do. Again, texting, email, fa- Facebook, social media. We can organize these things without leaving our chairs because we're not leaving our chairs much anyway. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, 
even then, I suppose you could say, okay, hey, I want to organize people to, without leaving their chairs, order a bag of groceries from Amazon to be delivered to us. So yes, there are ways to do it without truly ever leaving your chair. I do think that, you know, to me, I envision a post-COVID world, leaving your chair and getting involved in the world and dealing with other people is, is, is part of what the answer is. Mm -hmm. I think there's a wonderful book called, and it's a very sad thing we're going through because so much of what I think is problematic in the world has to do with the fact that we have lost our, our appreciation for how important it is to associate in, in real time physically. There's a wonderful book by a guy, uh, I'm forgetting his name, it's called Bowling Alone. And his argument was that from, from times of yore, you were built into a network of associations. It was a given, let's just say America. It was a given that when you were born, you would probably be going to a church, you joined the PTA, you'd belong to the Little League, a bridge club, a bowling team, you know, some kind of local political group, you'd be involved in the town parade. All of these actions that, that knit you together formed your community and you were part of a community. We now live in a media age and in a digitalized world where our community is thought of as the people we kind of tweet with or email with or text with, and we've become less physically present in each other's lives. But that physical presence is critical. It's critical to community building. There's a difference between snarking at somebody on social media and having a conversation with them at, with beers you know, uh, at, at a club. And I do think that that's true for volunteerism. So for all that has to happen now digitally, I really would also say to people that plot your volunteer future based on where you're going to put yourself physically. You got to work with the people, you know, to really fall in love with the group and the mm -hmm. cause. Agreed. Agreed. That's, I mean, COVID is the, it's obviously a terrible thing. And the thing that scares me most though is exactly what you just mentioned. Yeah. I understand that people are going to die and that's terrible. And I understand people could get sick and that's, that's worse. But the, the thing that long-term scares me the most is that we might finally lose this, the, the muscle memory of how we used to make these organizations, these friendships, these communities in face-to-face, -face, person to person, because we're, we're getting out of the habit for so long. Yeah, no, I know it is terrifying. I mean, you know, when does live theater come back? When do people go to concerts and plays again? When do people have parties in their homes again? I mean, you know, we, we, are, we are a social creature. I, it, that said, I, I, it nonetheless, it, it makes me despair for us that people are still having social gatherings. <laughs> You know, it's like the only way we can cross this bridge is to stop doing risky things and stupid things. So these, you know, events, these social spreader events, it blows my fucking brain out. And, and of course, the other, you know, the terrifying thing is that, you know, this, this came about because we have, because we don't take climate change seriously, because it's very difficult to, we've, you know, we've just population growth has, has, you know, has, has perhaps writ our doom. If you're a Malthusian, I, I, I'm fearful that what caused this was it by encroaching on the environments of animals that did not interact with us. We have made ourselves susceptible to a variety of diseases and a variety of viruses. And that this is the tip of the iceberg. I mean, even the Chinese wet market, 
you know, which is where they think this, this stemmed, for all their nominal attempts to shut that market down, you're talking about the economic lifeline of thousands and thousands and thousands of people who basically live next to wild regions. They are still taking those animals and selling them now underground. So we might, you know, come up with some vaccines uh, that'll do the trick if we can spread them and if people will take them. But I also kind of feel like TikTok for the next fucking go around. I can't argue with that in the slightest. I mean, everything is when you have a planet this big with this many people and this many animals, organisms, you're dealing with it's only a matter of time. And that is truly the scary part. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and the only thing that could make one feel less fearful is if you felt like there were political steps being taken, not just in America, but globally, that were, were integrating all of us, our scientific communities and our political communities in a way that would, 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 would generate a collective response. In America right now, the idea of collective response is essentially being branded as beyond the pale. We've always been an isolationist country. We have now maxed out that philosophy to such a self-destructive, a pitifully self-destructive extent that it makes, me, it makes me fear for our country and fear for our species. I mean, truly, when you, know, when you read about people who are dying of COVID in their hospital beds saying, I don't believe I'm dying of COVID. <coughs> It's like, what is wrong with us? The illusion that what one group of people has to go through doesn't affect There's probably very other. few Republicans watching this anymore. I, any, I, I suspect that I usually lose the Republicans after about a minute and a half of my spiel, so. Well, you're free to say whatever you want on my show. I mean, that is part of the whole thing. Like I said at the beginning, I, I, yeah, I what happens, happens. I have, I have never censored myself, so. No, no nor but, should yeah, you. I mean, if, like I said, we aren't in the same room. I don't have any beers on me, but if we were, we would have a few and I'd be glad to have the same conversation with you. So that's, that's just the nature of, we need to be able to have these kind of talks. Yeah. I mean, I, and I don't, I don't, of all the problems we face, the problem that to me is, is on a personal level, the, the one that is most daunting is if 73 million people we're still prepared to vote for Donald Trump. And I would assume that a portion of that population is simply, um, to a certain extent, willfully ignorant. I don't know how to have those conversations anymore. I, I do not know, and I, I, fa I have faced this pre-COVID, I do not always know how to have a conversation with somebody who is on the opposite side of a political fence. Because right now, I, I have so lost respect for so many people that it's very difficult for me to maintain civility and you do have to have civility. But to, to me, the, the unbridled racism, the unbridled demonstration of larceny and the contempt for democracy that has been demonstrated by the Republican party makes it extremely difficult to enter into a conversation with people who are Republicans. And I don't know how we get past that. I read a lot of people who say, you must try, you must find a way through good faith to meet them where they are, to understand their sensibilities, to try and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. But my, my gut, my almost instinctive revulsion right now, and candidly my rage 
makes it very difficult for me to have those conversations. At dinner parties, when somebody says Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization, the impulse to want to say, fuck you, overrides my impulse to say, well, let's try and talk about that and have some historical perspective on the Black experience in America. I don't know where to put that. Really, I'm, I'm in a way, I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with politics because I did not trust my capacity to have a conversation that was that was uh, even tempered. In I'm food, I don't have to. True enough. I'm not good at these things, so I'm not going to pretend to be an expert. What I have found that has helped me is when you get to a point where you're seeing somebody who you can't have a conversation with and who has an opinion that's so repugnant to you that you don't, you can't even take them seriously. What I keep having to remind myself is if I don't talk to them, they're not going away. They don't disappear. That person is still in our community and I have to deal with the repercussions of that. So given the choice, I would rather have had the conversation than not. I, I, I'm torn because yes, my concern is, is that that conversation is not doing a damn thing to change their mind. Mm -hmm. And in the meantime, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour, two hours of my life, have, mm -hmm. been, have they been wasted? Well, I don't know if they've been wasted, but would I have been better off spending that time doing something that could make a difference in my community? I really appreciate and applaud those people who are devoting their lives to trying to figure out how to have these dialogues. And there's a wonderful group that goes around the country and I think they do something really interesting. They take people from opposite sides of the political spectrum, they bring them together and they kind of force a conversation based on values. They start by saying, what do you think, uh, what hurts your feelings the most when people you know, say something about you? They say I'm a racist. I hate being called a racist. They say I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm an idiot, a bleeding heart. I hate that. And they try and bring people together on the basis of can you get through the pejoratives? My problem is, is that in all the follow-up conversations with the people who participate, none of their actual political opinions change. Mm -hmm. And 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 in a way, it's like the rhetorical solution doesn't seem to offer us any way out because the structural impediments are, are don't seem to be fixable. I mean, if I very accurate, if you can't fix, if you don't get rid of the electoral college, if you don't get rid of gerrymandering, if you don't get rid of any number of political obstacles that stand in the way of, I mean, gerrymandering to me is a particularly problematic thing. If you've got a district in which you know that the Republican candidate is going to win, Democrats aren't going to bother to even compete. And if you know, then it's consequently just a conversation between various forms of Republicanism and the Republican candidate can, will win if he's more radical than the other Republican candidate. It's a race to a rhetorical bottom. And I think that's what's happened in our country. If you could break gerrymandering and force every competitive, every district to be competitive so the conversation had to happen, that I think would be a structural fix that would solve the problem. But you can't, but the Supreme Court said, nah, we passed. Again, uh, make, that makes total sense. I said it, I, I really think that our, our biggest issues are are far st they're structural rather than down to individuals or groups. It's it's a much bigger a systemic issue. Yeah, but but you know the number of people you talk to who under, who, who understand. I mean, I hate to say this because people. Th this is one of the great abandonments uh, to my mind. This is interesting because I've had facetious uh, conversations in the last few days on podcasts. This is a serious conversation. <laughs> uh, one of the things that to me. 
in abandoning the public education system and in abandoning the concept of an educated population, it's almost impossible to have a conversation these days. If you can't talk to somebody who has an historical perspective, who's familiar with our history, familiar with American history, world history, who understands the concept of gerrymandering, who un understands the, when Tommy Tuberville, the Senator from Alabama is, is a functional illiterate when it comes to understanding how our governmental system works. We just elected him to the U.S. Senate. I, I, that's where I sometimes feel like, it's like, I just can't spend another two hours at a bar having an argument with somebody who hasn't read a goddamn book in 30 yeah, years. Agreed, agreed. And it's, again, I will go back to your point earlier is that sometimes you have to say, is this the best use of my time and energy? And I, I completely yeah, respect that like, perspective. Bartender, Bill, please, mm -hmm, you mm -hmm. know. Wow. Let, look, going back to how people can help each other, though, how pe can people follow you and the organization? Um, well, let's see. You you probably know all of my handles. T tell, I, tell, tell people what my handles are. I, well, I believe it's at jbillingsley60 on Bingo. Twitter. Yep. Um, and the website is uh, hopoco.org. Correct. Okay. And uh, I'm not sure about the Twitter handle for the organization, but I will put that and everything else in the show notes as well. Bingo, 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 bongo. We have Instagram. I fortunately have not been charged with running the social media for our organization because I'm an incompetent when it comes to that shit. So I don't have all the handles on the top of my head, but we have an Instagram account. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. And the website is going to be redesigned. So we'll have a new and improved website with all sorts of fancy bells and whistles, but it will still stay hofoco.org. Um, and you know, I I I tweet a fair amount, usually usually um, snarky, profane, and sarcastic shit. But every now and again, I try and plug the Hollywood Food Coalition just to keep people on their toes. Well, I will put every link I can think of on the show notes at AaronBosick.com, and yes. I will put a special link straight to the donation page. So if somebody is so inclined, that's right there for them. Bless you. I always think I'm probably like, I make a joke with my development director. It's like, well, I did another interview today. For every for every fan I've made, I alienated three people. So I... I, 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 <laughs> I said, I want people to be able to come on and say whatever they, means a lot to them. I personally try to take a uh, the path of, I just want to know who you are and what yes. you're all about. But if that's who you are and what you're all about, okay. Cool. I, to I totally get that. And I appreciate that. Okay. Well, John, thank you so much for being here. I would love to have you back anytime because I have truly appreciated having a really good conversation with a really good guy. I would like to thank John for being my guest today. And I would like to thank you for listening. For the community building part of the show today, I would like to remind you of John's great advice as to how to connect with nonprofit organizations and charities in your neighborhood, and I'm going to issue you a challenge. If you can sit down and look at what's available in your community and not find a way to help, reach out to me because I bet you I can point you in the right direction. My email address is bossigpodcast at yahoo.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to this show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Amazon, and we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks. We'll see you next time.